Financial Residency is proud to bring you Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Each week, Tammy Krause explores a new topic related to achieving financial independence by building and protecting your wealth. She invites guests who are experts in their fields who will share honest and valuable advice on a variety of topics. If you have an idea for a podcast, please email Tammy, that's T-A-M-M-Y, at financialresidency.com. Now grab your front row seat to this week's Grand Rounds. Hi, and welcome back to Grand Rounds. Today, I've got Colin Carr with us, and he is the CEO of Carr, which is a commercial real estate company, and his primary focus is working with physicians and other healthcare providers and helping to ensure that they get the best deal that they can, whether that be through leasing or purchasing to where you would become the landlord. So welcome to the show, Colin. Tammy, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I thought maybe we could start out by talking about some of the common mistakes that physicians make and then maybe go from there and talk about some tips on getting a great deal, so to speak. That sounds good. You know, when it comes to the mistakes, there's more than we could ever possibly imagine because there's a lot of places to mess up a commercial real estate transaction. Anytime you've got a high dollar negotiation, which is most, you know, most commercial leases or purchases are high dollar I mean, you could have a short-term lease, you could have a really small space, but the average commercial lease is going to be a five, seven, or 10-year deal. It's going to be a couple thousand square feet. And if it's in a quality building, you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars in rent per year. So, you know, the lease, the aggregate or total lease amount of money could be easily a million dollars or more over a 10-year period. And then you factor in, you know, most people have to pay for a portion of the build out. So they're usually borrowing money to the tune of tens or hundreds of thousands. They're equipping it with furniture, fixtures, and equipment that equals tens or hundreds of thousands. And so the total cost of a deal, when you factor in all the different components, especially once you factor in staff and payroll and all the operational expenses, it's millions of dollars over a 10-year period of time. So you know, the first thing I always want to say is like, it's not a minimal expense. It's not to be overlooked. And I guess I'll jump into the first concept. Just because you can submit an offer or you can negotiate yourself doesn't mean that you should be doing it yourself. You know, there's a lot of ways that patients could try to self-diagnose an issue, self-treat, get online and search things. And that might work for a really minor issue. That's probably not the best game plan for when you get into serious health issues or serious health situations. Um, you go to the expert, you go to the specialist. It's what they've been trained to do. It's what they've been doing for a very long time. They surround themselves with experts. It's their craft. And so the first thing is don't take the do-it-yourself approach. You can call on a property, you can submit an offer, you can sign a lease, but it doesn't mean you should be doing it by yourself. That's the number one mistake we make is a healthcare provider or an office administrator will say, well, I'm capable of doing this. You are capable of getting a deal done, but you're probably going to lose $100,000, $200,000 in the process. I always joke, like, I can remove my own tooth. Like, I've got, like... <laughs> Their pliers, you know, like Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway, like had an ice skate and a rock. Like, like you can get your tooth out, but you're probably better off to go to an oral surgeon and just pay the freight and do it the right way. Avoid infection, avoid bone chips, avoid other issues, avoid abscesses. Like, there's a lot better way to do it. I can move my own tooth, but it's going to come at a price. You can do your own lease, but you're probably going to lose a hundred to a thousand dollars. You're probably going to miss tons of concessions. You're probably, it's probably going to take you dozens of hours of your time, which would be way more valuable somewhere else. So you get the point there. Getting into the actual like specifics of a transaction, other top mistakes that healthcare providers make, 
they'll talk to their neighbors to figure out, well, what are you paying or what did you get? And then they will benchmark or like mentally say, this is a good deal or a bad deal based off what someone else is receiving. That would work if the person you're talking to got the best terms possible, had expert representation and fully capitalized on the deal. But what happens a lot of times is that healthcare providers will be in a building with another healthcare provider, or they'll have a friend in a building down the street, and they'll say, well, what did you get? And they'll ask the person, and they'll tell them what lease rate they're paying or what concessions they did or didn't receive. And then they'll use that to say, okay, if I can get something similar, I'm in good shape. The problem with that is most healthcare providers are getting hammered on deals. Like they're getting crushed by landlords. They're not paying the most competitive rates. They're not achieving the same concessions and benefits that sophisticated tenants are receiving. And I know that because I was a landlord broker for almost a decade and I would watch publicly traded companies, large companies come into buildings and they would have excellent representation. They would capture every ounce they could capture. And then an individual healthcare provider would show up and they would literally pay like $5 a square foot more per year. They would get no TI allowance, no concessions, minimal free rent packages. And they would you would look at like the professionally represented companies versus the individual doctor. And it would literally be a couple hundred thousand dollar difference in the total deal package over a 10 year period. Talking to a neighbor there's no, nothing wrong with that. No one's telling you not to do that, but that shouldn't be your benchmark. It's like asking somebody who's in really bad shape physically, who doesn't eat healthy, like, well, what do you do? That's not your benchmark. The person's a hundred pounds overweight and they eat whatever they want. Like that's not the person you should be getting advice from as far as how to be healthy. So that happens a lot. Another thing that's really common in commercial real estate is that people will choose one property to negotiate with. And the reason they do that is because that's what you do a lot of times with residential real estate. Like residential real estate, you look at properties online or with an agent, you drive around. But when you find that property you think could be the one, you submit a single offer. Like it's very uncommon in residential to submit multiple offers. It's actually illegal to submit multiple contracts unless you can execute on all the contracts. So if you sign three contracts in residential and submit them and you don't have the desire or interest of buying three houses, that's actually violating real estate law. It's enticing people to enter into contracts that you don't have a desire or an interest in facilitating all three. In commercial real estate, you don't submit a contract. You submit a letter of intent or a request for proposal. And the top companies in the world, the Fortune 500 companies, the professionally represented companies, they submit four or five letters of intent or a request for proposal on every requirement. It's non-binding, but it allows you to get a very thorough picture of the market and an understanding of what is going to be competitive and what landlords and sellers are willing to do. So you go to market, you look at maybe five, six, eight properties. You don't want to get too many, but you don't want to have too few. So there's going to be the right amount of properties that are pre-qualified. And then you try to narrow down to the top three or four properties. Now, you might have like your favorite property picked out from day one. You might go look at seven properties and say, that's my dream property or that's the one I want. Nothing wrong with that. But you always negotiate with three or four landlords. And here's why. Number one, landlords get much more competitive when they know they're competing with multiple other landlords. Like for instance, if you're buying anything, if you walked into a car dealership and said, that's the only car that I'm going to purchase and I'm going to only buy it from you, what's the best price you can give me? That's a fool's approach to buying a car. If you walked in and said, hey, listen, I've already talked to two car dealerships. I got two dealerships holding the exact same vehicle. Here's the price on one. Here's the terms on the other. 
all of a sudden that person knows they can't give you an average deal. They got to put their best foot forward to win that client or win that customer. It's the same in real estate. If a landlord knows that you are only negotiating with them or you're only submitting an offer on one property, you're not going to see their best terms. It's not going to happen. Another thing that's common in that same scenario is you can leverage one landlord against another. If you submit three or four offers, well, if three landlords are going to give you, let's say, six months of free rent to build out and one's going to give you three months, it's very easy to have a factual negotiation with the fourth landlord and say, listen, I like your property, but you're not competitive in this range or this area. Not because I'm just, quote, begging you to give me a better deal because I, I want a better deal. It's factual. Like the other landlords are doing this. You're not competitive. You are the outlier right now because you're not doing what everyone else is doing. That's leverage that is factual versus emotional. Um, and that leads me into like my next concept is you should never be emotional in a negotiation. Like you might be emotional like behind the scenes. You might be emotional in your heart or in your mind. But if you're involved in a high dollar negotiation and you're getting upset or flustered or, you know, you're, you know, you're raising your voice or you can tell, well, I can tell you're getting emotional. Like you're at a disadvantage. Like people who are in a position of strength in a negotiation are just that they're in a position of strength. They're not getting emotional. They're negotiating factually. They know what their options are. They don't feel like they're ever backed into a corner. They can walk away at, at any time. And again, that's just, that's kind of a combination where you see people that are only looking at one property when it doesn't go their way or they're not getting what they want. They're literally stuck with just basically literally begging for a better deal. Well, would you give me more money here? Would you please do this? Would you do that? Would you do this? And the landlord's sitting there going, why would I just, why would I arbitrarily give you an extra $100,000? Well, because I asked you for it. I mean, if you break it down, I don't mean this to sound too disrespectful. It's a really dumb approach. Like if I walked up to you and said, hey, Tammy, you know, would you give me $10,000? Would you give me another 10,000? You'd be like, why am I giving you 10,000? Well, I'm asking you for it. I'm negotiating. You're like, no, you're not. You're begging me. If I said, Tammy, listen, I'd like to transact with you, but I can't do your deal here because you're not competitive. The other landlords are doing this and just, I've got to do the best I can for my family, my practice, my staff. I've got to go over here because they're offering me this. If you want to match here, if you want to get competitive, I'd love to talk to you. It's just a totally different approach. And most healthcare providers, most office managers who are doing this, they're literally just begging landlords. And landlords know when they're getting begged and they don't acquiesce. They don't agree to those things. They basically hold firm. And so I think that was probably four or five mistakes people make, but I would say don't do it yourself. Higher representation. Always look at multiple properties. Don't rely upon your neighbor. Rely upon the market. Rely upon an expert. Don't get emotional. And then I throw one more in there very quickly make sure you start the transaction at the right time. A lot of people like wait until they have like two months left in their lease. You have no posture with your current landlord or they'll try to negotiate like three years in advance. The landlord knows you're on the hook for the next three years. You're not going to get them to just again, voluntarily give you an extra $50,000 in rent reduction because you asked for it. There's, you're locked into a lease for three years. So you got to wait to that perfect window. And it's usually around 12 months where they know, hey, if I don't make a deal, I'm going to have a vacant space in six or 12 months. Now's the time to make a deal. Now's the time to get aggressive. That timing does impact what you do or don't receive. Now, we talked a lot about leasing, assuming that you're going to be the tenant, not the landlord. Do you work with a lot of physicians who also want to become the landlord, buy the commercial property, and then lease out to other physicians or healthcare providers? Yeah, we do. And, you know, owning commercial real estate is a very desirable position to be in if you're a healthcare provider. 
because it starts with the idea that your number one tenant's going to be yourself. And if you can bet on anyone, hopefully it should be yourself. If you don't feel like you can bet on yourself, don't become a landlord. But assuming that you believe in yourself, assuming that you believe in your practice, owning commercial real estate can be a phenomenal way to build wealth. You're building an additional asset. In addition to your practice, you're building an asset in the real estate because every month that you cut a check to your mortgage lender or your bank, you're paying down a portion of principal. So your net worth goes up every single month. Every check you cut, your net worth increases, your balance sheet goes up. You also pick up a lot of tax deductions when you own commercial real estate. You get to depreciate the actual asset, not the land, but the asset. You get additional deductions, usually to the tune of like tens of thousands of dollars of additional tax deductions per year. Um, You can do bonus depreciation with the finishes as well too. So there's a lot of different things tax-wise you can do in tax structure that's great. And then also, you know, real estate historically appreciates. You can get into a down market or the market can dip. But if you look at real estate over the last like 50 years, I mean, it, it, it's gone up by several percentage points every year as an average. If you buy an asset for a million dollars, you put a half million dollars into it, like the odds are it's going to be worth more than a million and a half dollars in 20 years. Like the odds are it's probably going to be worth 5% more, 10% more, 20% more. And so there's a built-in increase in the value, which is a built-in increase in your net worth or your asset base. And then when a lot of healthcare providers go to sell their practice, when they own the real estate, it's very common and actually more common for the real estate to sell for more than the practice, even on big practices. So you might have a practice that sells for a million or $2 million or $3 million. Whatever the size of the practice is, the real estate's usually worth more. And so- even if it was worth the same, that, that's not my point. But the whole idea is that you should have a cash flow in your practice. Like your cash flow is your source of income. Like it, it is your, it should be one of your top sources of income or your top source of income. But it should also be an asset you can hopefully sell at some point in time in the future as a provider that owns a practice. And if you own the real estate as well, that's another benefit. Now, to get into the comment you you made as far as like being a landlord and having other spaces. If you can find that type of a property and you can afford it, that's icing on the cake. We tell healthcare providers, let's look at properties that meet your needs first and foremost. And if there happens to be properties that have additional spaces available, if you'd like to be a landlord, if it works, great. But let's meet your needs first. If that's a single tenant building or you're going to occupy the whole thing, great. You'll be the only tenant and you'll be your best tenant because you can count on yourself. If there happens to be additional spaces to where you can lease those out, we're great with that. But here's some of the criteria that we go through. If that additional space or two or three were to go vacant, let's say somebody moves out last minute, let's say that there's a death or disability, let's just say something happens and it's unforeseen, it's not planned out, and all of a sudden you have a vacant space and no one's paying rent, can you still cover the full cost of all the payments in the building, the taxes, the insurance, the mortgage? If you can still cover that, whether no one's in the building or it's fully leased up, in a worst case scenario, if you can still cover all the costs and you're still good from a cash flow, that's a really safe position to be in. If you find yourself in a place where if one of the tenants moved out, you'd be in a, you'd be in a tough place financially, then we're going to probably avoid that. Or if you find yourself in a place where if both spaces were vacant, you would be going under or you'd be having to call your bank and renegotiate your mortgage. Like We don't want to be in those scenarios. So the position of strength asks the question, can you afford the payment whether everyone's leased up here and every space is leased or no one's here. If you can carry it when no one's there, then you're great. Everything on top of that's going to be additional income for you, additional offsetting to your expenses. And that's kind of the criteria. 
We go a lot deeper than that on a financial analysis, but that's the first part is, can you afford it if no one's here? And if the answer is yes, then great. Let's move on to the next set of criteria or financial analysis. Is that kind of where you start? If I came to you and said, you know, I want to open my own practice, but I don't know whether I want to lease or buy. I mean, is that also kind of where you start that financial health evaluation? Yeah. Yeah, you know, not knowing whether you should lease or purchase is the most common scenario that we see. And what we counsel and advise our clients is that look, let's look at both options. Like, let's not predetermine which one makes more sense because every requirement's different. Let's go to the market. Let's look at your options to lease, your top options to purchase. Let's look at retail. Let's look at office. Let's look at medical office. And then let's figure out what the market offers us. And then let's try to narrow it down from there. When you go to the market saying, I have to own or I have to lease, like you might be missing the best property in the most favorable terms economically just because you predetermined that you had to be in one property type or the other, or you were only going to do a certain type of transaction. That's not the best way to do it. There's times when the only option to purchase is a really bad property. Like we don't want to buy that then because that's going to hurt your practice. There's other times where people say, I have to lease. And we'll look at the market and say, you can buy this building fully build out the space exactly the way you want, class A finishes, and your effective cost of owning this will be less than if you lease. This is a no-brainer. You have to buy this building financially. And if they're like, well, no, I only want to lease. Like, that doesn't make sense for your practice. Like, uh, So there's no one-size-fits-all. And then I'll also say this, there's a lot of times when there's nothing to purchase. It's not like residential, that everywhere you go, there's a house for sale or there's always a neighborhood or what have you. In commercial real estate, you might say, look, I got to be I got to be in this specific area. Like this is where I've been practicing for the last 15 years, my patient base, my referral sources. And you might say, I can only go within a two mile radius. There might not literally be one property for sale. Or if it is, it's like a $12 million building and you can't afford it. So a lot of times the market will dictate that for every one person who owns, there's 10 who lease. And so commercial real estate as a whole is predominantly leased, not owned. And that's just because of the cost of real estate. And that's because of people's changing needs and all these other variables out there. Whereas residential, there's always a house you can buy somewhere. So I would say this, don't predetermine whether you're going to lease or purchase. You can have a desire, just like you can, you can pick your favorite property, but you can't fall in love. You've got to go to the market, look at your options, figure out which properties would be the best for your practice. And then you got to run a financial analysis and say, you know, can I afford it? Is it what's my cash flow? Do I have the down payment? Are the tax deductions going to be worth it? Is, you know, is this a slam dunk or is this going to be a really big stretch for me? And then at the end of the day, you're going to take all that information and data and then try to make the best decision for your practice. And that's going to be usually it's going to be a 10 or 20 year decision. I mean, you buy a property, I'm going to be there for 10, 15, 20 years. It's not a, you know, you get a mulligan or a do-over like next week if you don't like it, like you're locked and loaded for a long time. So I saw in your company in particular, you have about 150 professionals across the country. What's the best time to come in? You said there's kind of a sweet spot when you're ready to negotiate. Is that six months? Is it a year, two years? What do you usually recommend? Yeah, it depends on the transaction. So I'll give you a couple of different scenarios. If you're buying a practice, as soon as you find the practice you want to purchase, you're bringing in the real estate person to help analyze the real estate right away and make sure that it's the right property, the right terms. You're not relying upon the practice broker who is selling the practice. They work for the seller and they don't work for you. So don't misunderstand people's roles. It's kind of like the idea if somebody sued you and the attorney called you, like you wouldn't ask that attorney to help give you advice. Like 
understand people are on different sides of the transaction. Like if the IRS comes and audits you, you don't ask them for advice, you get your own CPA. But if you're buying a practice, there's going to be a practice broker. Oftentimes they're working through the seller. You bring in your own real estate expert to help you analyze it. If you want to do a startup or you want to do a new office, whenever you're ready to go, that's when you hire the person. Whenever you realize I've got the financing, I want to figure out which market to be in or whatever, whatever part of your due diligence you're in. As soon as you're ready to go, you hire that person. If you are in an existing lease and you're trying to decide between renewing your lease versus relocating somewhere else or buying a property, the sweet spot there is typically 12 months in advance. The 12-month mark is important because you're not too far out to where the landlord says, I'm not going to deal with this. They have to deal with it in about 12 months. So you're not too far out, but you're also not too short on time as well. You've got enough time to go to market, look at multiple properties, negotiate multiple properties. And then once you sign a deal, you still need to have a solid six months to build out your space. It doesn't take six months to swing hammers and you know hang drywall and all that stuff, but it does take six months in most markets to get a space plan done, fully engineer it, get the construction documents, take them down to the building department. And then that usually those documents sit on someone's desk for like a month or two before they get to it. Cause there's usually a queue or a line you got to get in line. And then they might go back and forth with your architect or engineers for a few weeks or a month. That whole process can take three months before you can even swing a hammer. And then at that point you are probably, you know, an eight to 12 month build out process. So you want to make sure you always have at least six months to build out. That's in an ideal scenario. If it's a fully built out space, you're just going to do cosmetic carpet and paint. That's a different story. But assume you're going to build out, assume you're going to need 12 months, and that's a really safe time frame. That's a time frame where landlords are willing to get aggressive to win your deal. They'll pay attention to your deal, but it's not too far out and you still left yourself time. The last transaction I'll tell you is if you want to buy a piece of ground and you want to build your own facility or your own building, that's a scenario where you need to find at least 18 to 24 months to complete that transaction. If you try to start that transaction 12 months in advance, you will be having to renew your lease on a short-term lease or do a holdover. And a lot of landlords won't give you a six-month lease. They won't give you a one-year lease. They know that at that point, they got you stuck between a rock and a hard place. They don't want to accommodate you. They want to make you sign a long-term lease. So the fastest I've ever seen anyone buy a piece of ground and build their own building was like 13, 14 months. And that person had everything working in their favor and they knew exactly what they're doing. And they had a killer team. It's typically an 18 to 24 month process. So you might ask the question, well, what if I don't know if I want to buy a piece of ground or renew? You start 24 months in advance. And then if you find out you don't want to buy a piece of ground, then you wait till you're 12 months out to negotiate. Or if you do, then you move forward with the land. But 24 months on a new piece of ground, 12 months on almost every other transaction. And if it's a startup or you're buying a practice, it's the second you know you're ready to go, that's when you engage someone. Well, if someone is in the market either for leasing or purchasing or building, how would they get in touch with you? I think, like I said, you've got 150 professionals across the country. So it sounds like you know you could probably help people almost wherever they are. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we transact in all 50 states. We're doing stuff everywhere you can possibly imagine. But the best way to get a hold of us is our website. And that is car.us. That's C-A-R-R.us. In the upper right-hand corner, you can click to find an agent and just go to your state and select someone that you would like to talk to or that's in your city or in your area. Uh, we also have a huge national account department. So if you have requirements all over the country or multiple markets, we can help you with that as well. But 
the most important thing is just start a conversation with someone, let them talk to you about the market, let them get information from you as far as when does your lease expire? What are you currently paying? What are you thinking? And then they're going to start directing the conversation. They're going to start telling you if you're over market, if your lease renewal option is a good option, a bad option, if you've got the right assignability clause, if you've got a bad assignability clause, they'll start talking to you about economic stuff, timing concepts, and then they're talking about non-economic concepts too that you're probably not thinking about that could have a huge impact. Like if you want to sell your practice in the future and you don't have the right assignability clause, like that's going to stop your practice sale, believe it or not. So there's things they're going to help guide you on. And, you know, it's just like a patient going to see a provider. Like they don't really know what's going on. The provider has the ability to diagnose, test some things, bring in someone else, but they're going to create the path of this is the direction we should go. It's the same thing in commercial real estate. They're going to direct the conversation, get you on the right path. And then ultimately you say yes or no to everything. No one's grabbing your hand, signing something for you, but they're going to get you the information you need to make an informed decision. And I guess one last question, what kind of cost is involved when you use a real estate expert like this to help guide you through the process, whether you purchase, lease, or don't? Yeah, that's one of the best parts of working with us. As a tenant or buyer, as a healthcare provider, doing something for your practice, you will never pay, you should never pay your agent. Commissions in commercial real estate are paid by the landlord or seller. And just like residential real estate, if you're going to go buy a house, you have a buyer's agent the listing agent's going to give you half the commission or split the fee with you. Now, the next question comes, well, can I save money if I don't have an agent? The answer is no, you're not going to save anything. And here's why. You're not the owner of the property determining the commission that's being paid. You're entering into a transaction where a seller or a landlord has already predetermined how much money they're paying in commissions. And so a lot of times healthcare providers will make the mistake and say, well, if I do it myself, I'll save money you're not going to save money. The listing broker gets, in that scenario, the listing broker gets a double commission or the landlord just pockets that money. So yeah, I always joke around like it's, you, you see the U-Haul vans driving all over and on the side of it, it says, move yourself and save. Like, yes, if it's between you moving yourself or you paying a moving company, $5,000, sure, you can save money. But in this scenario, you're not the person cutting the check. You're not the person determining the commissions. It's already been determined. So you can hire representation, you can save yourself 40 to 50 hours of your valuable time. You can get tremendous peace of mind by seeing the entire market, negotiate with all these different landlords and sellers. You can avoid huge delays, complications, pitfalls. You can capture the most favorable terms possible, ensure you get the best deal possible, and then you're not paying the fee for that. It's being paid by someone else. It's really a, the best example I could give you is Imagine that a patient has insurance and they have a certain amount of insurance left that year. And if you don't use it, you lose it. Like the insurance company is not going to send you a check saying, well, you didn't use this benefit. You get calls from your dentist at the end of the year saying, hey, you know, you've got $500 left, like come in and let's do this or let's do that. If you don't use that money, the landlord's not giving it back to you. They're going to keep it. It's the same thing for insurance with a patient. And I think that one hopefully drives the point home. Well, gosh, I think that was the best part of the whole show. <laughs> great. I, how much does it cost? The answer is free. Even better. <laughs> yep. Well, thanks, Colin. I really appreciate you coming on the show. And hopefully I can have you back and you can give us even more tips in the future. Try and save money for everybody. Yeah, that's really the whole point. I would say in closing, just treat real estate with the level of respect it deserves, which is it's typically the second highest expense behind payroll for most practices. And if you make a mistake there, it's going to cost you, it's going to cost you tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you capitalize, it could save you a lot of money. And at the end of the day, we're not talking about like hurting landlords or taking advantage of sellers. Like 
we're talking about being integrous in our negotiations and doing it the right way, but we're just trying to capture the best terms possible so that we've got the highest level of profitability in every practice. And if you do it right, you will increase your profitability. That's perfect. Again, if you want to reach out to Colin, you can go to www.carrr.us. And I'd like to thank everybody for tuning in today. I hope you'll join us again next week for Grand Rounds.